Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Coast to Coast Combat Hour. I'm your host, Matthew Hawkins, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ed Carbajal. And on a weekly basis, we are brought to you by AllAccessMMA.com. Check out AllAccessMMA.com for any of your MMA news and our video podcast. This week, we have the pleasure to uh, have uh, one of the great voices of combat sports uh, in the United States, and uh, somebody whose, whose voice is just synonymous with uh with MMA uh, for me and, and I know Ed, uh, Sean Wheelock. Sean, thank you for joining us. Hey, Matt. Hey, Ed. Thanks so much for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. So um, uh, given your seniority in the sport and how long you've been doing everything, I mean, again, I was before we, we started recording, I already know I've, I was fanboying up and I'm still going to get it out of my system as we do the interview. But um, I appreciate I mean, it. <laughs> uh, you know, with, with the we were talking about the posters and stuff in the background. Um, I mean, is, uh, is your connection with Art Davey, like the way you got into the, your career essentially, or like what, what gave you the fight sports bug to, to do what you do? No. So the Art Davey story, well, I'll tell you, I'll back up. So I, I'm from Kansas. I, I actually live in the suburb where I, where I grew up. I live about uh, 15 minutes from, from the house I grew up. I was with my mom earlier today. I live in a Kansas city suburb called Shawnee, Kansas. And when you grow up in a state like Kansas, you're exposed to wrestling. You just do folk style in gym class in grade school and junior high. It's just something you do. Mm-hmm. And I also was exposed to a phenomenal pro wrestling territory. I'm just old enough to have caught the end of the territory days, the central states days. Mm-hmm. Throw that in with the fact that I was raised by my mom, but my late father, who I would see at least once a week, was from New York. He was a big boxing fan. And my dad was was about a generation older than my mom. So my dad was old enough to have told me about Rocky Marciano and Sugar Ray Robinson. And I spent a lot of Friday nights at my dad's and we watched a lot of boxing and that really got me into it. So I kind of had this blend to be a, a combat sports fan. You know, I love pro wrestling. I was around wrestling. I love boxing. I, I was never a tough kid by any means. And even though I've been doing MMA and grappling for a long time, I, by no means I'm a tough guy. But but I've always been attracted to combat sports. As a competitor, as a fan, it's just something that's always spoken to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, in October of 1993, I start seeing this poster. It's actually not the poster, but I think it is the poster. Yeah, it is. It's that poster behind me. That's right. That's the Gold's Gym poster, the UFC 1 poster, the exclusive on pay-per-view. And I see this poster, and I'm like, man, this sounds like the coolest thing ever. And I, I was kind of... Uh, aware in the periphery of something called shoot fighting. And, mm. and I'd read about some stories in Japan and I heard names like Ross Root and Bart Vale and the Shamrock brothers. And I wasn't quite sure what it was. And I remember reading an article that said, it's like real pro wrestling. Well, I was hooked. So I see this poster at Gold's Gym in Kansas city. And uh, I, I'm like, okay, this is great. So I was young enough that I still didn't have the money. I asked my mom, and she's like, yeah, no problem. I, we didn't grow up with, with a, a lot of money. And, and my mom was a public school art teacher. She's retired now. I'm her only kid. So we didn't have a lot of money. But if I if I asked for my mom to, to buy me a Holofield fight or a Tyson fight or a WrestleMania, she always would without it, without question. And so I asked her to pay the $14.95. And I watched UFC 1. And, man, I was hooked. You know, there were a few life-changing moments and that was a life-changing moment for me. You like to talk about the birth of your children and when you meet your spouse and things like that. But that was a life-changing moment for me. The next day, I wanted to put someone in a garden. I wasn't sure what that was. And I was absolutely hooked. So and a very long way to get to your, your question. So in 2011, I, I don't know why, but I just started thinking about, man, I have to meet Art Davey. Mm-hmm. And I was calling people. A lot of people were confusing him with Campbell McLaren, which is unfortunate, or Bob Myrowitz, which is unfortunate. And he was just kind of gone from the game. And I'm a decent Google researcher. So I start doing my Google research and I find this press release and it has a 702 number on it. I'm like, okay, well, that's Vegas. I know that. It's, at least it's Nevada. It's probably Vegas. And I cold call this 702 number. And a voice answered. I'm like, Hello, is this Mr. Davey? Yes. Hey, my name is Sean Wheelock. You don't know me, but I'm the television commentator for Bellator. And we got into it, and I really just called to tell him thank you and that I was a fan, and and I appreciate everything he did, and I wouldn't have the career I did without him. Wow. And we hit it off. 
and we talked the next day and we talked the next day and that's coming up on nine years in July. And we've pretty much spoken every day since. That's amazing. That's, that's great. And you know, it's funny thing is I think we're all kind of in the same age group, uh, probably early to mid forties. I'm just guessing. Um, and so, so many people in our age group have kind of the same stories. You just took it to that next level. Um, I, my story I've told a million times. I saw Mark Hall train uh, for UFC yeah. 7, got in the car, drove 40 miles north, no cell phones, knocked on his door, found his phone, you know, pay phone, knocked on his door, ended up training bare knuckle. That's amazing. The UFC fighter. Yeah. So that's how I got involved and, 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 and stuff. But hearing you how you went, I mean, Art Davies, another level. I found a fighter who was local. You went to like the Grand Puba of the, uh, you know, short of going to Hori and Gracie directly or somebody. <laughs> um, you basically went to it. So, uh, you you contacted him, but weren't you weren't you didn't you do some boxing refereeing or judging or was that yeah no that was yeah, that's years ago man so so I started training boxing a little bit and I was I was decidedly mediocre which has kind of been my whole combat sports career I pride myself on being the world's most mediocre grappler I'm not bad and I'm not good I'm very very mediocre and I, and I was a pretty mediocre boxer and I kind of fell in with the boxing crowd around Kansas City. And there was a promoter named Randy Cook, and this is in the 90s. And it's it's just before commissions started getting going. Missouri had a commission, but a state like Kansas, where I live, I'm on the Kansas side in, in Kansas City, didn't have an athletic commission. So promoters really ran the show. And he was like, hey, you want to fight for me? And I'm like, yeah, maybe. What does it pay? And he goes, $200. Hmm. And he said, or you could referee for me. What does that pay? $50. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm not very good at boxing. I might win. I might lose. I'm probably going to get my face smashed even if I win. But if I referee, now I can keep coming back and back and back. <laughs> so literally, and I think I was 22 years old, I had no training other than being a lifelong boxing fan. And I'm thrown in and I'm refereeing fights, which is insane, pre-commissioned days. And I loved it. And, and I've always taken things extremely seriously. If I'm interested, I'm going to do everything to the best of my ability. And I tried so hard. And I was a lifelong boxing fan. So I understood the mechanics of what a referee does, having never been trained. But I started refereeing, and I refereed a lot. And I wound up refereeing in Missouri. I refereed Nebraska. I refereed in Arkansas. I'm on the old Midwest circuit. And, and that got me into it. And I loved refereeing, and I started judging. And mm -hmm. when my television career started getting going, now I'm, I'm doing fights on the weekends. And, and that was kind of the end of my officiating career. But then seven years ago, I got a call from uh, the, the Kansas uh, Department of Commerce, and they told me there was a seat coming up on the Athletic Commission. Would I be interested? And the first thing I said is, you know what I do for a living? I was a Bellator at the time because I, I didn't know about conflict of interest. And they said, no, that's why we're calling you. There aren't a lot of people from Kansas who are involved. And I said, well, if, if you pay me, I'm trying to be magnanimous. I said, well, if you pay me, I'm, I'm going to have to recuse playing it cool. And they're like, no, we don't pay. I'm like, okay, well, good. That's, that's not a problem then. And, and so I wound up uh, being appointed. Uh, that's not a diploma, by the way. I'm a college dropout. That's, a, that's my Kansas commission thing. <laughs> so my wife framed that for me. I'm not really one to brag. So I think that's, that's all of my memorabilia. Those are like the three important things outside of my family in my life. UFC 1, BKFC 1, my commission appointment from the governor of Kansas. But I want to do anything and everything in combat sports. And wow. just, just last Saturday, I, I was working my, my commission gig. And a lot of people see me there and they think I'm commentating. I say, no, this is my lucrative non-paying gig. I really love it. I just want to be around. I want to help. I don't referee or judge anymore for the simple reason that I don't want to take away paying work from our people in Kansas. Mm. But if, if I'm not commentating, I'm pretty much going to be somewhere in the state of Kansas working for the commission. And it's just overseeing. It's helping out where you can. Being on an athletic commission is a lot like, not that I've ever done this, but a lot like being on the board of directors of a not-for-profit it's kind of what you make of it. You're not going to get paid. You're there. And if you're really into it like I am, you can get a lot out of it. And if you're hmm. just there to build your resume, then that's what you're going to do too. Yeah. I mean, it's actually one of the questions I was going to ask you about how you got appointed. So thank you for, for telling us about that. Um, uh, you kind of uh, touched on something um, as far as like um, your, your love for combat sports and martial arts and things like that. You work with so many people. Have you? Had you? I've I've spoken to him. He's actually here, out here in Jersey. I feel like 
The answer is yes. Did you work with Josh Palmer for like grappling stuff too? No, you know, I, 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 I know Josh, I've met him a couple of times. We just kind of run parallel universes, but I've never actually worked. No, I I think Josh does a fantastic job. Um, Super knowledgeable, really good commentator. I've just never actually worked with Josh. I'd like to be fun to do grappling. You know, I've done, I've done grapplings. I, I did Quintet 3 with Misha yeah. Tate, which was the first Quintet in the U.S. It was in Vegas in, I believe, 20, October 2018, I believe. And until the pandemic, I was doing every yeah. submission underground with Nate Quarry, which mm. was so much fun because I'm such a grappling nerd. Yeah. And, and Nate's such a cool guy and working for Chael Sonnen. Unfortunately, with the pandemic, Chael has yeah. not been able to bring us out even now a year on. Nah. But I'm, uh, Nate and I were actually talking right after Triller. He called me. Like man, we got to get back to it. So yeah, yeah but yeah, Josh is a cool guy. Uh, he does a great job, and um, so, I, I miss having a regular grappling series. I have one. It's just mm. Chael's doing those remotely right now, yeah. and I know he really doesn't want to commentate his own show. So I'm waiting, <laughs> waiting to get back for Submission uh, Underground. Yeah, I, I love Submission Underground. But the reason I asked about uh, Palmer was because of just talking about like you know he's 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 also uh, i think he's like a second degree black belt in brazilian jiu jitsu but i mean when you're talking about fighting and stuff he was he just about your own you know we're all old all too old for the sport now but the uh he he and i when we spoke about it afterward we were just we both said you know as much as we've been as long as you've been training and you do something to stay in shape um we're just hobbyists compared to these 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 competitors that you're calling the fights for and stuff like that and i think just uh what you do just speaks to your love for for what these guys are putting on the line out there, um, which is which is I guess uh, leading me to my question about when you when you collaborated with the book for Art, Art Davy. I mean, is it was it more kind of like um, him having you do editing, or I mean, like how do how do you how do you collaborate with someone that's like the pioneer or your catalyst into yeah. you know what I mean? Like I'm just wondering how. What did you do to help to get that book out? Hey, it's a great question, and you're a writer yourself, so I and I think this will speak to you. So, you know, as I was saying, I I, I really thought I was if I ever got Art Davy on the phone, I thought it was going to be a conversation. Even though I was the commentator of Bellator at the time, this was 2011, and I'd already done Pride and Affliction and M1. I'm still fanboying out on him big time. I really just called for no other reason, just to tell him thank you. I just wanted to speak to the great Art Davy, and we hit it off. So Art and I start talking a lot. And uh, that was at a time in 2011, our, our younger daughter, Hadley, uh, had been born on a day before my birthday, actually, March 17th. Wow. And so my wife was going to bed very early. Our older daughter, Ellie, was it was uh, five, just turning six that summer. So the family was going to bed early those nights. So I was calling Art a lot, 10, 11, we were talking and I saw that he wanted to tell stories and no one had really asked him in a long time. And he had really, in 2011, he'd basically been out of the game since about 1997. And I can talk about the chronology on that in a bit. We just started talking and I literally asked him every question I ever wanted to know. Why Denver? (laughs) Why Hoist Gracie and not Hickson? Where did you find these guys? Why an octagon? How did you get with, how did you get with Hicks? How did you get with Hickson and Enzo Gracie? And, Every question that I could think of, why Semaphore Entertainment Group? Why did you sell? How much did you sell for? You know, where did you find John McCarthy? All of these questions. Mm. And maybe six or eight months, I, I just kind of had the idea. And I said, Art, you know what? You and me ought to do a book. He was like, yeah, you know, he said, I've been approached before, but I, I, I'm, I'm thinking, yeah, we should do a book. So the original idea we came up for the book, which became Is This Legal, is that I was going to do an oral history. Mm. So I was going to talk to Art. I was going to talk to McCarthy. I was going to talk to Hickson and, and Hoyce and, um, uh, and all. I mean, even talk to Hoyler, right? I would talk to uh, the fighters who were there, the eight uh, plus the two alternates. Both Kevin Rozier and Pat Smith were still alive at this time. So all 10 of the original guys were living. I'm Marowitz. But I thought, okay, well, I'm going to start with Art. As Art told me the stories, it occurred to me that all roads lead to Art Davey. Art Davey mm-hmm. found the Gracies. Art Davey found Campbell McLaren and Bob Myrowitz and John McCarthy and the fighters. And I said, Art, you know, we need to change the focus. This needs to be a memoir. I said, this is your story. And I said, we'll make it historically accurate and we'll make it correct and, and we'll fill in the blanks. But I want this to be a memoir. And that's what is this legal turned out to be. 
Wow. Wow, that's one uh, that well, here, I'll, I'll, I'll answer one more question, too, because this is a really writery thing. Uh-huh. The process, I, I don't even like the term ghostwriting because I think that's unfair. Art wrote a lot, and I wrote a lot. And he would send stuff to me, and I would rewrite it. And then I would send stuff to him, and he would rewrite it. And it came to the point where even now when I look at the book, it came out in 2015. Mm. I can't remember what I wrote and he wrote. We, like, literally, it was a 100% collaboration. Mm. He would write things and I would say, no, I think this is it or we need to change this narrative. I would write stuff and he would say, no, that didn't happen that way or this or that. And we started to think like each other. I knew I was in deep when I actually woke up one morning. This is a true story. And I dreamt that I had been writing the book. Mm. That's how immersed I was into it. I, I took a time when if you guys remember, Bellator was in seasons then. Yeah. And I took a Bellator off season and I was writing 10, 11, 12 hours a day on this. Oh, wow. And sending it back to art, and he was writing and back and forth, and uh, that became the book. Now, I will tell you guys, which is really cool, is that we had sold an option on the book uh, in 2017, and, you know, it's film and things go slow, and, and I'm an optimist by nature, but you can't get overly optimistic, get unrealistically optimistic. But uh, the producer we sold it to is sold it to a major studio so oh wow knock on wood it's going to be a pretty big film they have two screenwriters they have a pretty big name director so it's going to be i think if everything comes to fruition i'll knock on wood one more time i think it's going to be a pretty cool movie oh wow that's that's great i mean i i uh, now you make me feel bad for not having i read it i I read uh, (laughs) i'll get you a copy pal (laughs) thanks thanks but i read raw combat like there's a lot of there's a lot of books about the beginnings of MMA and combat sports that I have read. I mean, Matt and I had the uh, author for the the Pride. Uh, um, the name's escaping my mind, Matt. The the author we had from Ireland that wrote about the the history of Pride fighting championships. Um, literally in the other room. But um, and then Raw Combat because Jim Jenny, who kind of who kind of like helped me, you know, get into the writing business out here in the in the Northeast. But um, that's all super interesting stuff. I'm sorry, I'm. I'm Jumping on Matt's question, but no, I mean, not at all. It's, yeah, it's just uh, I mean, you gave you gave me a lot, and that's that definitely uh, really motivating. No, I think we're gonna have to have a part two to this eventually because there's so <laughs> much. That I, uh, yeah, um, so uh, I don't want to backtrack too much, but so I'll ask a quick question here, and then I got a second question about commissions, real quick. Uh, anything from Art Davy? You start talking about all, throwing out all those early names, asking about where he met all these guys. Is there anything from the first? five UFCs or so that he told you that maybe not a lot of people would know any weird fact or a fighter oh, that wasn't allowed. I mean, I'm sure there's a million, but anything yeah, that you know what, Matt, it's all in the book. And here's the thing. And I said, the art going on, I, I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a journalist. I'm the first one to say I'm not a journalist. I, I'm, I'm a guy who talks about people getting, getting hit in the head on TV. I'm a commentator. I'm not a journalist and I respect real journalists. You know, I, I you guys are real journalists in, in all honesty and I'm not. But I've been around real journalists, such as the two of you guys. I kind of know what real journalists do. So I said to Art, I said, look, this is a memoir. And everybody sees events through their own perspective. But at the same time, there's never really been – Clyde Gentry had a really good book, right? But there's never really been that true story of how the UFC came about. That was No Holds Barred, right? Yeah, No Holds Barred. And and it touched on it. McCarthy's book is fantastic. And John McCarthy is one of my best friends. He actually – uh, read the manuscript. Um, I only showed it to a couple of people and, and John gave me some fantastic notes. Um, I knew I had something when John said, Sean, I remember we were at Bellator and we were at Mohegan and it was the day before and we were walking into weigh-ins. John was refing, I was commentating. It said, Sean, I felt like art was speaking to me off of the page. And this is someone who's known art since 1992. So I knew I had something on the book, but I said to art, okay, it's a memoir. But this is going to be fact because simultaneously, this is the historical record. I said, so this isn't going to be a victory lap. I'm, I, I told him flat out, I said, Art, I love you. And I do really love Art Davies, like my dad. But I'm not going to write your victory lap. You know, I'm not going to write your coronation. We're going to write the real story. Because the truth about the UFC, it was destined to fail. It was not destined to succeed. The biggest surprise for me was how many people were against it. And maybe, you know, I've got my BKFC one poster behind me. I see how many people are against bare knuckle fighting 28 years later. So I I shouldn't be surprised, but 
so many people were were against uh, MMA. They called it dirty fighting. Yeah. They were linking it to traditional martial arts, saying it was a disgrace. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the ruinization of Western civilization. You know, it, it's famous or infamous with John McCain saying it was human cockfighting. Yeah. But you had Jim Coleman, who was the editor of Black Belt Magazine, running an editorial saying it was dirty fighting. Um, it, it's amazing the amount of people who said no. Art wanted to, to get a high-level American wrestler, either from freestyle or collegiate folk style or Greco. Kept calling Dan Gable. Dan Gable, to this day, has never returned our Davies phone call. <laughs> you know, he, he went through people like Dennis Alexio and Bart Vale, who were purported tough guys who just, not, not for me, and wouldn't even give him an answer. Talked to so many boxers from Leon Spinks to Bonecrusher Smith to Randall Tex Cobb. So many people didn't just say, no, thank you, graciously. It was like, this is the worst idea I've ever heard. You're a horrible human being. You're bringing a disgrace on the entire Western or perhaps the world civilization. That was a real surprise to me. It wasn't yeah. just Art was starting with an idea and trying to build up. He was starting with an idea. Everyone pushed him down. He had to get back to level before he could build up. Interesting. Well, real quick, just to backtrack to the commission thing, so I don't forget it. So Kansas has pretty much been on the um, the lead for kind of open scoring. Um, did, did you? What is your opinion on that? Yeah. I guess. And would you? Uh, I mean, I guess your opinion is going to tell the story. But were, did you have a big say in creating that in the Kansas? Was it kind? Was was it your idea? Or was it somebody else's idea? Or was it just a collaboration that came up? So with I'll, I'll tell you the structure of Kansas. So we have an executive director that's Adam Rohrbach, who's one of my best friends. And I didn't know Adam until he was appointed. He got hired, and then I was appointed. I think within a couple of months later. We hit it off immediately. We're about the same age. You know, I'm a Kansas guy. He's an Indiana guy. Just really hit it off. What I like about Adam is is he knows what he knows and he knows what he doesn't know. Adam comes to combat sports from from, uh, collegiate softball. He was a softball coach. He he was actually at the University of Kansas before he took the Kansas Athletic Commission job. So he still, even though he's been in the job now, I think eight years, he still has a little bit of an outsider's perspective, which I like. Hmm. So Adam comes up with all these ideas all the time. And when I'm not commentating like I did last Saturday in Olathe, Kansas, when I was at a pro-am MMA show, I'm sitting next to Adam at the, at the commission table. Adam throws ideas at me all the time. And a lot of guys just like, Adam, dude, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. And maybe a year and a half ago, he said, you know, we ought to do open scoring. And I said, you know, man, they've done that. And I said, I've actually commentated a number of boxings in Mexico because the WBC has played with it. I'm like, dude, they announced it to the crowd. You can't hear it. And he's like, yeah, I don't care about any of that. And he didn't even know what I was talking about. He <laughs> said, but I think we need to do it. And I, and I fell back in this argument. I pride myself, guys, on being extremely open-minded, but I fell back into my argument. Yeah, but, you know, the fighter who's mathematically ahead is going to take off the last round. I'll get to that in a minute, how wrong I was. Hmm. Then we're at an Invicta. And, you know, I don't commentate Invicta. I was, I was at Invicta just working the, the commission. We're at the commission table. Goes into the fifth round of a title fight. And Adam and I are privy to the scorecards. They're not made public at this point. And we, we see that it's two rounds apiece. And Adam said, how great would it be if these two fighters knew that it was two rounds apiece and that the winner wins this fight? I'm like, dude, you're right. And it opened that up for me. I'm like, I remember us walking out of the building together to our cars at Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. I'm like, bro, you're right. So then where I'll take credit on is the implementation. I said, Adam, you have the idea, but we can't look like idiots running around. We have such a great commission now. We can't turn into a clown show. So we figured this out. Adam came up with Google Docs. We talked about pad holders. And I said, you know, this really isn't for us to give the fighters. This is to give their corners. If the corners want to give it to their fighters, cool. But what I don't want to do is have someone with a pad right in front of the fighter. I mean, they have enough going on. Now they've got to figure out a jumble of, am I 38 or am I 36? Am I red or blue? Who's 10 and who's eight and who's nine? And you know, that's that's not easy for a lot of people, especially if you're in the midst of a very competitive pro or amateur MMA fight mm-hmm. or we've expanded all combat sports in Kansas. But any type of combative sports fight I said, you know, we need this for we need this for the coaches, the chief seconds, the trainers. They want to give it to their fighter. Great. But it's their information. That's how they use it. 
we have inspectors in the corner of Kansas. And we thought, you know what? The inspectors are there for a very specific reason. We don't need them holding the pad, but we don't need two people in there holding the pad. And you're getting in the way of the cut man and the chief second and all of this. So I came up on the idea, let's park that person with a tablet, with an iPad, outside of the ring ropes, outside of the cage. So they're on the floor uh, to the back of the fighter, holding the pad up and it's direct eyesight with the trainer slash coach slash chief second. And that's what we've done. It works. Now, here's the crazy part. Every fighter loves it. That's not so crazy. But that argument, which I still hear, the fighter who statistically, mathematically is ahead will take the last round off. We've compiled data. In open scoring in Kansas, the percentage of fighters who statistically are up and can only lose by being finished. So, for instance, you, you would be up, right, you would be up two rounds to none 2018 going into the third round or yeah. that type of thing, right? Statistically, you have the advantage. The percentage of those fighters who mathematically have won unless they get finished, winning the final round has gone up. Mm. So on, on a house show in Olathe, Kansas last week, it was a five-round uh, you know, promotional title fight. It was a pro, you know, smaller level promotion house show. <coughs> the kid was up. He had won, he had won rounds two, three, and four, 10, eight. He had won round uh, one, 10, nine. He still 10-8s his opponent in round five, wow. and he knew this score. You know, wow. Chris Lytle, you know, my, my, what was turned into one of my best friends in the world, my great broadcast partner on BKFC, said anybody who thinks that a fighter will take the last round off, even if they know they're winning, has never fought. And that's so true because when I hear people say, you know, the, the fighter who's winning will take the last round off, they're yeah. never a fighter who says that. Yeah. It's well been – universally loved. There's still a lot of people, a lot of commissioners say, oh, it's terrible. It's the worst idea. It doesn't do this and that. Fighters love it. And that's truthfully all we care about. You know, you know, what's funny, um, as you were talking about it, um, I remember, I, I'm pretty sure it was Roy Jones Jr. when they asked about, this was like back when, you know, boxing was, was the thing to watch on Saturday night on HBO, like right. in the 90s. Um, and he was he was still active, you know. He was in his prime, but he also, if you remember back then, he did commentary too a lot. And oh, yeah. I remember, I remember, I forget where where or why it came up, but I remember when he was asked about it, he said I, he was like, "I don't need that. It's a distraction to me. I don't need that on my mind in the middle of my match." And um, that's kind of like because of him, I was a big fan of his. That's kind of like where where I was. It sounds like you were you were kind of there too, but like you said, well, being yeah. open, yeah. So I'll give you two examples of that. And this is why it's for, for the trainer. And I, I'm a big believer that the person in your corner, depending on the combat sport, you call the coach, trainer, chief second, right? But it's the person in your corner. That's your number one advocate. Mm -hmm. They need to be there for you. So we do a BKFC October of last year, and we have the open scoring. So, so David Rickles, my buddy David Rickles, all the way back from the Bellator days, in his corner is Joe Wilk. I'm very close to both Rickles and Wilk. Wilk was my broadcast partner at Victory on Fight Pass. So I talked to Wilk afterwards and about the open scoring because I never told Rickles. I said, why not? He goes, dude, I want him to go on finish. He was fighting Cliff Wright because Rickles was piling up 10 eights, didn't lose a round, but he was doing that psychology and he wanted Dave Rickles to finish. Now, he should have known that Dave Rickles will fight as hard as he can, no matter if he's up, down. He could be up 99 rounds to zero, and he's still trying to finish. Now, well, that's interesting. Same card, Joey Beltran is fighting Marcel Stamps for the heavyweight title. And so through three rounds, three, two of our three judges have it 30-27 Beltran. The third has it 29-28. No, they had After, it for Stamps. I mean, for Stamps. I beg your pardon. For Stamps, yeah. correct, 100%. Right. Three rounds to none, three rounds to none, two rounds to one. 30, 27, 30, 27, 29, 28, all for stamps. Five-round fight, right? Bare knuckle. Afterwards, uh, I'm talking to Beltran. He said, you know, I really felt that I had won the third round. And when I looked and I saw that all three judges had me losing that, he thought, man, it's go time. He said that wow. changed the way I fought. And he came out and he finished stamps in the fourth round. When is it bad to give somebody information, yeah. you know? Yeah. Why is, that, why is that bad? Why is it secret? You know, why are people always so protective? I just heard today actually from Adam Rohrbach, someone was trying to get the scorecards, and I don't even know what sport it was, a promotion in Illinois. Mm -hmm. And the Illinois Commission said you need to file a FOIA Freedom of Information <laughs> Act request. It's like, really? Yeah. For scorecards? You know what we do in, in Kansas? We have them on Google Docs. We tweet them out round <laughs> by round. 
<laughs> if you're hiding something, there's probably a reason. Maybe you're embarrassed yeah. or you're not proud of it or something. You know, you know file a FOIA request. So yeah. we put it out. And, you know, for, for people like Roy Jones, if Roy says to his trainer, I, I don't want to know the score, then he's not he's never going to see it. And we've never had this. But if the corner said, you know what, we don't even want that distraction. We're not sending our pad holder over there. Now, I can tell you in hundreds of fights with open scoring, that has never happened. Mm -hmm but it's the option. They don't have to have it. Open scoring is a tool. So we've only had one UFC in Kansas. That was Wichita uh, in 2019. Yeah, 2019, March 2019. But if the UFC or anybody else said, we don't want open scoring, that's fine. Mm. You know, I like to think, you know, they're, they're very liberal commissions and they're very conservative commissions. We're yeah. a very libertarian yeah. commission. We're a small <laughs> government commission. Hey, we have open scoring. If you want to use it, cool. If you don't want yeah. to use it, that's cool, too. We're not going to tell you how to run your fights. Yeah, yeah I, Roy I, Jones probably didn't have much. In, in the 90s, he was always up 10 rounds to none. Yeah, anyway, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when I can tell you firsthand, having commentated a lot of boxing and WBC shows and even WBC world title fights in Mexico, I speak functional Spanish. But they'll announce the scorecards after rounds four and eight. Mm. And in the, the ring announcer who's seated, not in the ring, is reading it. People are cheering. It's really tough to hear. Mm. So, and it's very fast. You know, whether it's English or Spanish. And my Spanish is good enough that I can pick up the numbers. But it's still tough to hear. Mm -hmm. But our thing is, it's for the corners, what they want to do to their fighters. Um, promotions have the, office, uh, have the option if they want their ring slash cage announcer to read it to the crowd. Surprisingly, they generally do not. I'm not sure why that is. I think they want to build the drama. But again, that's up to the promoter. It's our libertarian bent as a commission. Yeah, and yeah. with BKFC, you know, we have all the Invictus in Kansas. We had a good run. I think we had eight or nine LFAs during the pandemic. They did a, a residency at Hartman Arena in Wichita. And they've used it round by round. And broadcasters seem to love it. Television producers, it gives them another tool. I can tell you as a commentator, it was fun to commentate that. And Crystal Idol and I could play off of rather than speculating, okay, now how does this change the strategy? It's a really cool tool. And that's what it is. It's a tool in, in the tool shed. Pick it up and use it or don't. But but we're the only state, the only commission in the ABC that has that option. Well, one of the things, I mean, my degrees in communications. And uh, I remember one of the one of my communication electives I had to take was managerial communication. And one of the no-nos of communication for that course was don't withhold information. Right. So 100% with, with, I agree with you with what you said about about you know when is uh when is it bad to to, to not give it out. Yeah. It's not. It's not. And um so far with every every time we watch an event where open score is in, I haven't seen online, I mean I'm always live tweeting on Twitter and all that stuff. Everyone loves it. Everybody Yeah, loves it. people do. So so the 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 arguments that I've heard against it there, there were basically three. And you know, I already told you about the argument, ah the person mathematically statistically ahead isn't going to fight. The numbers have said that the opposite happens. They they're actually winning that final round more. Mm -hmm. Uh so that's one. So so there's zero merit in that argument. Again, talk to any fighter. Those are those are people who, who are around fighting. They're usually executive directors or, or athletic commissioners who don't know what they're talking about. Second one is, well, this isn't going to fix bad judging. Yeah, no kidding. Seatbelts aren't going to fix bad <laughs> driving either. It has nothing to do with yeah. anything. What it does is that it puts the judges even more accountable instantly. Yeah. And I can tell you when I got on the athletic commission, there were people and they were good people who just did not keep up with their training, who are no longer referees, judges, timekeepers, inspectors mm -hmm. in the state of Kansas because they did not keep up with their continual education. You know, mm -hmm. if you watch if you watch an MMA from 1998, the fighting looks a lot different. But there are still yeah. people who try to referee and judge like it's 1998. Oh, my God. So, you have yes. to move. so to fix bad judging was was nonsensical to me. I, I, it wasn't even – that was never even a part of it. it. It's to give the score. You know, in, in team sports, you give the score. In the NBA, the NBA playoffs, you can see that it's 82-78. That's not there to fix bad officiating. It's there to tell you the score if you're winning or losing mm -hmm. and maybe to make your adjustments to your strategy. The third argument – and I still cannot figure this one out. People say, well, the judge who's, descend who's the dissenting judge, he's going to know, and now he's going to try to play catch-up. And I'm like, 
All right, how does this work? So after round one, two of the judges have a 10-9 red and you go 10-9 blue. And first of all, if you're that insecure, you probably shouldn't be a professional combat sports judge, but let's say you are hypothetically. So now you go 10-9 red, but then they go 10-9 blue and you're still playing catch up. So, you know, scorecards, at least in good commissions like Kansas, are turned in round by round. So it's not as though people can go, hey, wait a minute, you know that round one? Well, mm-hmm. I need to change that. Once your score, it's like a vote, man. You know, yeah. once your scorecards are in, they're in. <laughs> There's no going back. They're turned in every round. So I, I've tried very hard, and some pretty smart people have told me that. Well, the the judge who's in the minority and the dissent are going. They're going to then be influenced and try to change. But unless <laughs> right, you're Matt. You're shaking your head, right? Yeah, it's, unless it's you're, you're psychic and you say, <laughs> okay, well. Mike D'Amato or Mike Bell and Sal D'Amato had it 10-9 Jones in the first round. Uh, but, but maybe this, but it's a losing game. And again, if you're that insecure as a judge, you mm. shouldn't be judging it anyway. Yeah. Well, my, my solution to bad judging is do what happened on my second live BKFC event, BKFC 17, is just have all the fights go to, go to a finish. <laughs> That's right, you know, I judged one event in my life, uh, probably about 99 or so, and every fight went to uh, a finish. So made it made it easy. real easy, and I go down as a great judge and never had to put my name it, on anything. But um, Easy money. <laughs> easy money. I mean, you know, and the, and the thing is, too, is, is there were some great referees and great judges in this sport who no longer work, mm-hmm. and some of them retired or they just lost, lost interest. But And I'm not going to name names. I don't want to embarrass anybody, but we can all figure out who some of these people are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They, they did not keep up with the sport. They didn't go to training. You know, I, I can tell you that happened in Kansas. You know, we, we had a very senior referee, and, and he failed the referee's test. And, man, he failed it badly. Wow. You know, did, did I not keeping up with the training. And you have to train – so many athletic commissions award good attendance or seniority, and that's a horrible criteria yeah. on both yeah. counts. And yeah. speaking of BKFC and ref and refereeing, was there a uh, during the um, Camus O'Bannon fight? Um, right. Did I, you know, obviously being in the crowd during that ruck, I mean, that was one of the craziest fights. Uh, I told Camus he was probably the toughest fighter I've ever seen oh, yeah. in two hundred plus live events that I've attended. Um, what uh, did the referee just lose count? Did he not know that there was because in BKFC there is a three knockdown per round rule, correct? No, the, no, there's not. Oh, there's not. There's no. not. So there, it there wasn't were, actual corner issues. stoppage. Yeah, there were there were a few issues on that card. We had I'm not going to name names on the referees, but you have a mandatory eight count. People always get confused: a mandatory eight and a standing eight. Mandatory eight is in boxing and in bare knuckle. If you go down. Even if you're flashed and you're up at one, the referee still counts to eight seconds, then goes through the formality that you wish to continue. A standing eight, which pretty much uh, exited the sport maybe 20 years ago, was pretty much gone by 2002, 2003. You would see it on lower-level boxing. When I first started refereeing in the 90s, we had it. Guys would be taking punches. They would shell up. They would cover up. They weren't defending. The referee would just start counting and treat it as a knockdown. That doesn't exist in boxing anymore. There was, there was an instance when a standing eight was given when it shouldn't have been. There was an entrance, instance when the mandatory eight wasn't counted out fully. But, you know, I'll, I'll give slack because it's an evolving sport. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so new. And you have people who have only refereed boxing, people who have only refereed MMA. I love the Alabama commission. They're great, but it was the first time they'd ever had a bare knuckle show. So I'm not going to pick on anyone or beat up on anyone, but there were just a few technical things. Thankfully they did not affect the outcome. And as upset as we can all get as combat sports fans with refereeing and judging, if the outcome, meaning who won, who lost wasn't affected, then at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's not great. And this is, these are teachable moments where people need to get better yeah. But nothing impacted the outcome of the fight. But yeah, just technically, there there were a couple of things there. But every referee on that card was really good, and I think they'll all be back. So, just because you're talking about how how um, passionate fight fans can be, you know, they'll, they're, they'll, everyone's got an opinion about you know certain refs, certain judges. Um, it's it's there's also people that seem, at least lately, I'm noticing that have. Uh, I mean, I just want to know. From your point of view, as a commentator, there's people that have opinions about how fights are called and commentated on. Always, so, man. <laughs> always. 
So I'm just wondering, like, uh, I mean, I don't, I've never seen anybody have a, a poor opinion of, of the job you do. I think personally you do a great job. Thank um, you. Been watching you for a long time. And, and I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find someone that doesn't like what you do. I mean, which is probably why you do it almost everywhere. Um, Thank you. But, but, um, but am I like, like, how do you, if you do, if you have gotten stuff like that, and I just haven't seen it, like, how do you handle it? And then when you're home watching fights, do you ever, do you, I mean, of course, we're not asking you to throw anyone under the, under the bus, but do you ever just say like, oh, come on, what are you saying over here? Like, yeah, all, like how do you all, separate all the time. It? <laughs> all the time. Yeah, it, it's, re- it's really tough as a commentator. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll do this. I'm a, I'm a big NFL fan. I'm a big soccer fan. I used to be a soccer commentator. And, and you hear things. You'll hear things. You go, oh, that was really good. Or you hear things. Like, oh, it was kind of rough. Um, <laughs> you know, I uh, people have their opinions. Fans, for whatever reason, my whole career, I'm going to knock on wood some more, have been extremely nice to me. And, you know, maybe that, that's my Midwestern personality that I never try to be the star. I, I love big personality co- color commentators. You know, Chris Lytle has a, has a great big personality. Jimmy Smith, mm-hmm. um, the shows I've done with Boss Root, and I think have been so much fun. I do well with those people. So maybe because I don't try to be the center of attention, I'm, I'm kind of trying yeah. to orchestrate. I, I try to be the midfielder. I'll use soccer terminology. I'm trying to be the midfielder rather than the goal scorer mm-hmm. is what I'm looking to do. I'm trying to play that ball through and then have the number nine put it in the back of the net. Maybe that's why. I don't know. People are very, very charitable and, and very nice to me. Um, I, for whatever reason, you know, I, I've never commented the UFC. If I ever did, I don't think I will. But if I ever did, I, maybe people wouldn't be so nice. They seem to have stronger opinions. You know, I'm friends with John Anik. I think John Anik does a great yeah, job. He does. And I see him getting beaten up online all the time. And maybe that's just the profile of the show. But what I like is the fact that you're, you guys are fight guys. When I'm around fight people, be it fighters or hardcore fans or journalists or trainers or gym owners or managers, mm-hmm. if they tell me that they dig what I do, then then I feel like I'm onto something because that's where I'm. Uh, that's where I'm trying to go, and and yeah. that probably <laughs> led to my demise at Bellator after Bjorn Redney left. There was a, left. There was a big uh, philosophical shift. And I'm going to be me and I'm going to try to be a fan and I'm going to be passionate. I'm going to try to be knowledgeable on this too. I'm not going to play the everyman or or play dumb or things I don't know. So I'm going to put forth that passion and being a lifelong fan and and being a student of all of this stuff. And and I hope people respond to it. I I really feel blessed. I feel blessed in my career. I feel blessed that the nice notices I get, even, you know, after Triller, I had so many nice comments on that and, uh, I, I am. I'm very, very fortunate. I, I probably yeah. shouldn't think about it too much. <laughs> Knock on wood again. I don't want to jinx myself, but yeah. no, I do appreciate the, the feedback is always so great from fans and from the fight community. So is there, is there ever an environment? I mean, you mentioned Triller, so I'm, I'm going to bring it up just because uh, stuff came out from Frank Mir and, and, and uh, I don't know if Cunningham said anything, but I know Frank Mir did a couple of interviews where he wasn't, it wasn't you. But it was yeah. uh, it was uh, you know De La Hoya and 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 um, I forget the other gentleman that was trying to control the whole thing. I'm I'm sorry I forget his name. The other gentleman that was on the mic that night. Let's see, Ray Flores was on. Al Bernstein. Ray Flores is the one. So like Ray Flores was the one that was kind of trying to. If 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 you rewatch it and you listen, I mean, you could tell he's trying to save like I'm not save what what. Just kind of stopped De La Hoya from doing whatever he was doing. Ray was in it. I love Ray, and I'll tell yeah. you, Ray did an A plus plus job on that show. Yeah. He was put in a tough position on the De La Hoya situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was just, I mean, that that's kind of like what I was asking before about when you're sitting, if you're not calling, you're sitting home and you see stuff like that. I mean, just your reaction uh, to that. Uh, you, you just said it, but uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you, I mean, your enthusiasm and everything you've told us about your your history is um you know speaks for itself so uh, i'm pretty sure that i already know the answer to this but for from first fight to the last fight especially when you do the, when you did cards for bellator where like they're yeah. fight cards and stuff like that your energy seems to stay the same from the first fight to the very last fight i mean like how do you prepare for a night like that what do you do do you mean is it coffee uh you know green tea like like i mean or Diamond just- do my friend Diamond do <laughs> <laughs> okay, is that that's it? Is I, that I it? Mountain Dew. No, you know what? And, and you've hit on something that, that I, I take as much pride in my career as, as anything. 
is that I'm going to give you my best effort 100% from the first fight to the last fight. And I remember this is after Bjorn left at Bellator in the new regime. I'm not talking about Coker. Uh, I can talk about Coker, but but not on this stuff specifically. It, it was it was the people at, at Spike at the time. And mm-hmm. I remember them telling me, like, why are you interviewing the undercard fighters? Because they're fighting. I actually had a producer get my ear and say, why are you trying so hard on this fight? Because we're broadcasting it. So what? It's on Spike.com. Mm. Mills Lane, the great boxing referee Mills Lane, is one of my personal heroes. I got to know him fairly well. When, when I was young and, and refereeing boxing starting out, I went to a bunch of his seminars. I remember seeing Mills Lane on a profile. It was ESPN or HBO or somewhere. And Mills Lane, they'd followed him, and he was doing a show in, like, nowhere in Nevada. And the, the reporter said, you know, you do the biggest world title fights, man. Why are you here? And he said, because to the two guys fighting, this is the most important fight in the world. And I'm going to treat it like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I do that. That's that's my philosophy. And whether whether I'm doing FAC on UFC Fight Pass or if I'm doing Triller, which had, what, 1.5 million buys, or when we did those Bellators where we got close to two and a half million viewers or these huge bare knuckles like Knuckle Mania. If you hire me, you're going to get my best job. And I, I'm a grown up. I can say no in occasion, not very often, but on occasion I will say no because I just don't feel that the promotion is, is quite right for me. I actually did that last week. It's pretty rare for me. It just didn't feel quite right to me. Hmm. But if I say yes, you're going to get my best job. And so if it's prelim number one and it's pro debuter versus pro debuter, or if it's the main event and it's a world title fight, I'm going to be consistent. I'm going to do my best. And I think I'm going to hit that to, to give consistency. You know, there's so many things you can't control as a commentator. You can't control if people like you. You really can't control what your voice sounds like. You can work on your accent. I've got a pretty flat Midwest accent. You can work on your accent, but it's kind of who you are. You can control your effort. And I really take that to heart. So I'm going to give the same fighter meeting. I'm going to give the same prep. I'm going to give the same energy, the same passion, the same enthusiasm, the same everything I have, no matter where it is in the card. And I'll tell you, Bellator, 13, but Jimmy Smith and I come from M1, where we were doing 18 to 20 fights. So 13 felt like a vacation. When I commentated Affliction 1 with Jimmy Smith, we did the world feed on Affliction 1. Affliction 2, there was only one feed. It was the pay-per-view. It was Jimmy Tito Ortiz and me. But Affliction won. The pay-per-view was McCarthy, Frank Trigg, and Jay Glazer. World feed is basically for everywhere else that's not the United States, taking an English language feed. And it was Jimmy Smith and me. And we're in the production meeting. And the producer's like, man, you know, they have you scheduled for eight fights. That's way too many. You guys will be exhausted. And Jimmy and I are laughing like, we just did 22 fights in Tokyo four days ago. I think we can, I think we can handle <laughs> wow. this workload. That's no problem. But I appreciate you noticing and I appreciate you bringing bringing that up because, you know, two things that I, I really pride myself on uh, is the fact that I'm always neutral, even if I have very close friends in fights. And sometimes I have close friends fighting each other in fights. Mm-hmm. I'm neutral in that moment. I do not care who wins or loses. I'm right. just worried about giving, not worried, it's the wrong word. I, I'm efforting to give the absolute best performance that I can doesn't matter in every fight on that. And the other is the consistency because I'm going to treat every fight the same. And by the same, I mean, I'm going to give it my 100% effort. You know, on top of that, every fighter basically that's come up in the last 15 years at some point was a prelim fighter. Yeah. You know? 100%. So, so yeah. I mean, yeah. that's why as a fan, I, I get it a lot. I like, I go to fights left and right crazy and I'm there 10 hour before the, the first fight starts. I don't miss a prelim because I don't want to be the guy who misses George St. Pierre on a prelim fight. I don't want to be, you know, Bellator yeah. example is I met uh, Goiti Yamauchi. Like it was yeah. his Bellator debut. He's walking around the Pachanga casino, a bright eyed, probably 21, 20 year old right. kid at the time. And just to see the look on his face when I asked for a photo with him to shake his hand, tell him mm-hmm. how great he fought. He kind of had broken English at that time. It's gotten better now, but he, he was, to see the look on his face and you start to realize that and now look at him. I mean, I think he lost a BS decision a couple weeks back, right. but he's, he's on the precipice of, of becoming a superstar. Oh, um, absolutely. No, man, I, I love that you say that. I'll, I'll tell you a story on Anthony Smith. I've, I've gotten to be pretty close friends with Anthony Smith in real life. Anthony, I met him. He fought Brian green on an undercarded Bellator. And I believe this was 2012, 2012 or 2013. And we're in council bluffs, Iowa, which is, 
it's the twin city of Omaha, just, just on the other side of the state line from Nebraska to Iowa. And Anton and I, we just hit it off in the fighter meeting. And he's telling me about how his wife is pregnant with their first child. And he's going to do a gender reveal on the trunks. He's either going to be blue or, or pink, right? <laughs> and it turned out to be a girl and he wears the pink trunks. So I, I say this in the production meeting. They're like, who? I'm like, Anthony, well, who's that? Well, he's on the number. Ah, why do we care? That's ridiculous. Next. Wow. It's Anthony Smith, you know? Yeah. Wow. That's in, in last summer, um, my family, we were in Omaha. We went to the zoo with my wife and my kids. And then we wound up going to Anthony Smith's house and hanging out with his wife and kids. And he reminded me of that story. He's like, you know, you were the only guy who treated me with respect like anything. I was like, dude, whether you you came into became one of the greatest light heavyweights in the UFC or not, it didn't matter. If if that was your first and last fight, I would have treated you the same way. But yeah. everybody else on the press like, well, what do we care? But had he been one of the top of the car guys, then they would have made a, a twenty minute long feature about the gender reveal. And man, there's too much of that in this sport. Is that yeah. I, you know here here's what I hate. You know, when we return, this fighter is in the cage. Is he fighting, you know, or at the top of the broadcast? Tonight on our main event, you'll see this guy. And as an opponent, even if it's an A side, B side, there's still another human being who probably has some pride and they want to be talked about too. I hate that in combat sports. It's so obnoxious. I can tell you most of the time it's not the commentators, it's it's the promoter or the producer. Yeah. No, it's um it's on on my end of things too. I mean, sometimes I'll I'll pitch to editors i won't say because I, I i write for a few places so i'm not i won't throw anyone under the bus but sometimes i'm just like hey um i'm speaking with uh you know uh a, a fighter that's on the mid card at L- an lfa event and they're like yeah no we don't you know yeah no. you know because like, what do you mean lfa what's you you don't talk to any ufc fighters and it's just like well where do you think these guys come from right I know, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it hasn't been since CM Punk that they had that they had a, a pro debuter in the UFC, so they are coming from somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's 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 pretty maddening, actually, isn't it? It's just yeah. a level of disrespect, and especially. You know, I mean, I know you said you train too and stuff like that. I mean, I, I come from a gym that had a few fighters in Strike Force, Elite XC, and even the UFC. So you see these guys from their beginning to when they get you know all the work that they put in and stuff like that. And you wish that they got the shine that that they're they're fighting for. I mean, not that that they're fighting for that, but you know, right? It's just like yeah, it's come just on. getting them respect. It, it yeah. goes back to what Mills Lane said to these two people: this is the most important yeah. fight in the world. And if we're there, and I'm putting my voice to it, mm-hmm. it, it and I'll tell more Bellator stories. But but early days of Bellator, like 2010. We and I, I don't know. They probably put them in a dumpster and set them alight. I don't know what happened, but. Some of those Bellators, because if you remember in 2010, we were actually on Fox Sports Net on Thursday nights, and we would do four, and sometimes we would squeeze in a swing and five, but most of those cards had nine or ten fights, and Jimmy and I would put our voice on them. A lot of times, they were dark prelims or post-limbs right after the main event, and we would still voice them, and there would be people on the crew, not never Bjorn Redney to his credit, I love Bjorn, but people on the crew like, why are you even trying the show's over well, the answer is you're recording my voice and maybe this person turns out to be a big star. Like Michael Chandler started in one of those fights, you know, that's what happened. So do you want me to not try? And then it turns out to be Michael Chandler, but Michael Chandler (laughs) fought a guy named Scott Stapp, not the lead singer of Creed, but another guy named Scott Stapp. And it was one of those dark fights in 2010 and he got a finish and I treated it just like any other fight that I would treat. And then the next year he comes back and he wins the lightweight tournament. And then he, and then by November of that year, he beats Eddie Alvarez and wins the title. Yeah. But you have to, why would you try? Exactly. <laughs> it's insane. You're right. It's, it's like, they think these guys just show up fully formed into a main event. Yeah. <laughs> did you, did you um, now I, the first Bellator I attended, I attended was Bellator 10 and that was still when it was half Spanish uh, or it was almost all Spanish basically. Right. It was. Um, did you you came along right after that, or were you a part of it when it was trans? You know, uh, still Spanish. So I was. So that was actually, and I don't even know if they called it on site. John Anik, and and that's uh-huh. totally lost to history. John Anik and Jason Chambers, and I'm not sure they were ever on site. I could be wrong on this. They may have just called from studio because John was full time at ESPN. It was an ESPN Deportes deal, mm-hmm. 
And another loss to history was that it was going to be kind of what, what Combate Americas is. They had Lupe Contreras, not Mike, Michael C. Williams as the ring announcer. You know, they, they were pushing the envelope on Hispanic. You know, Eddie Alvarez, who's from Philly, but he's Puerto Rican heritage. He was a Hispanic fighter. They pushed the envelope a little bit on that. And Brazilian somehow, even though they speak Portuguese, became Hispanic. I'm not sure how that worked. Yeah, but. I saw I saw Tony Lopez get in, interviewed, and <laughs> right. they, they made him do it in Spanish and then translated it in English yeah, for the crowd. Exactly. And I'm going. But, I just watched him fight last week at yeah. King of the Cage, and he fought. And he, he spoke. <laughs> he spoke perfectly. So. From California, but yeah. so so that was in 2009, and that was a mini season. And it's funny because the Bellator numbering is off. They did like a highlight show, and they numbered it. And I think they only did something like eight events. And then they did two shows, but they released them. Or they did one event, but they released it at two shows. So there was a lot of, of, of uh, play going on with the numbering. Mm. I, I, I was with Jimmy Smith, and we were at M1, and it was such a fun gig. Um, we were going basically to Europe or Asia every three weeks. And those shows were around the world. In the U.S., they were on HDNet. We would call all of these fights and then they would go back and they would make three one hour programs out of them. And they were everywhere. Like I, I had a friend who's a TV producer in Vietnam and he turns on the TV and there I am doing M1. Another buddy of mine's an architect. He's in Brazil and there I am doing M1. <laughs> they weren't that popular in the US, but they had a really good global reach. So I did that for two years. So in 2009, I, I heard that Bjorn Rebney was interested in Jimmy and me. And I looked into it and I'm like, they're on ESPN Deportes. Like, I don't even know if the English language commentators are there. And like, I don't even know where the English aired. If it ever did, I should know that. I Because, you know, this is 2009. So it's not like it was ESPN.com and there was no, you know, ESPN Plus. I think they may have, I should ask Anik this. I think they I may don't have think just, there was an English broadcast. I couldn't well, find I, I know they employed Anakin and Chambers, but it could have been they just called those for posterity that they never actually aired anywhere. Yeah, I feel like Anik did like um, Q and A's, or he used to do something. Yeah. It was it was before like the the main cell phone, smartphones. So yeah, yeah he used, exactly. used to he had like a mailbag where you could you could ask him about right. that week's Bellator events and stuff. Like yeah, that. and and but but the it was it was Jorge Bribiesca, George X, who then wound up coming along, and uh, 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 Manny Rodriguez, who came and uh, who were the lead, and then they they came along when we switched, but. In the fall of 2009, I got cold called by Bjorn Redney, and I knew who he was. And he said, I'm really interested in bringing you and Jimmy over. And Jerry Millen, who had hired me at Pride, who's another great guy, one of my best friends, guy owed a huge part of my career to, he had taken me to M1. And I went to Jerry, and I'm like, what do you think? And he said, man, he said, I don't know if there's a future in M1. I think they're losing a lot of money. He said, you guys got to go take this. I'm not going to hold you back. You and Jimmy have to take this. And I signed my deal first. I'm not sure why, because he won us at the same time. But I remember I signed my deal first. And then there was, I, I had to be coy. Like, I couldn't say it was Jimmy, but everybody knew it was. But for, for some reason, I don't know why it was taking longer with Jimmy. Because I know they wanted Jimmy as much or more than me. But they finally got us signed. Jimmy and I did our last show the week of Christmas in St. Petersburg, Russia. And then like the week after New Year's, there was a Bellator seminar. We were in Saratoga Springs, New York. And then Bellator 13, which was, I believe, April 6, 2010, Joe Warren fought on that card. That was at the Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, just outside of Fort Lauderdale. That was my first Bellator. People misremember that as being the first Bellator ever. Mm. But that's the first Bellator in English. And it was on Fox Sports Net. And it was the first one that got a lot of coverage. I, I guess be, we're starting to get late on time here. And, you know, as a fan, I, I have one more. I, I wanted to ask more about Fedor, but maybe we'll catch up on a later show. Yeah, no, but, we, we need to do this again. This is outstanding. Yeah. So first, so for me as a fan, there's been a few times in my life where I've, I've been at events and I've seen something and all of a sudden it's just like, I can't believe I'm getting to witness this. For me, it was it was ringside for Fedor versus Brett Rogers yeah. uh, in Chicago. I had, I had third row seats um, and it was the first, I think, no, that was after the affliction. So I had seen Fedor fight a couple times in person. Right. Uh, but this was the first time I was actually at a front, a, a ringside seat. And just to be there, I just felt like this is it. This is this is as good as it's, as a fight fan. This is as good as it's ever going to get for me. Was there ever a moment? What was the first moment you, as a broadcaster, had something happen where you maybe it was someone you met, or maybe it was a fight that was taking place. Maybe it was Chandler Alvarez won. Um, but 
what was there a moment when you were broadcasting where it was like, this is it. This is crazy. I can't believe I'm actually yeah. getting to do this. And, to, and for you, someone's paying you to do it and you get to be a part of it. Was there, was there ever a moment like that or something that sticks out? Yeah, man. And that's a great question. I love that question. Yeah. It was when I got hired by pride and, you know, it was the very end of pride and Maron Ranello had left and, they cycled through a lot of different people. I think Damon Perry was one. I think Lon McCarron. There's some other people who, who I don't even remember. And and Jerry Millen, who I referenced earlier, Jerry Millen hired me and took a chance on me. And and I had done some soccer. I mean, I had actually done soccer for for ESPN and Fox Soccer Channel. So I wasn't completely unknown, but I was completely unknown in the combat sports industry. All I had done in fighting, other than my refereeing for boxing at $1,500 a pop, was Joe Kelly's Titan Fighting Championship. Not the Titan now, Joe sold it, but it was a Kansas City promotion. A lot of guys who went who went on to big careers like Bobby Volker and Rob Kimmins and L.C. Davis came through Titan. And I did Titan on Metro Sports Television, which was basically cable access in Kansas City. And I used that reel to attract the attention of Jerry Millen. And I met up with him in L.A. and he hired me in L.A. And when I got just being in Japan for a kid from Shawnee, Kansas, being in Japan was pretty surreal. I had traveled a little bit, but that was my first time in Asia. And that was amazing. And and at Saitama Super Arena, again, it's the end of Pride. So there were 30,000 people there, not 90,000, but still 30,000. Yeah. And and. In that era, I as much as I love the UFC, in that era, 2005, 6, 7, I was more in love with Pride. Oh, so yeah. like, oh, my God, Ricardo Arona, I'm actually commentating. I remember Vanderlei Silva wasn't on the card, but he pulled up out front. And I'm like, wow, that's Vanderlei Silva. Like all these fanboy moments. Yeah. And I was a huge Trig fan, and now I'm working with Trig. Um, with Frank Trigg, it, it was that was that moment for me. Like, wow, I cannot believe that that all of these things. I'm commentating Pride. I'm in Japan. I'm meeting all these guys who I completely idolize. That yeah. was an insane moment for me. Yeah, awesome. that would be it for me too. Not for nothing. I mean, um, literally on the side over here, I got a. I have all the Pride events in a box. <laughs> on dvd and uh like you know people are like oh why don't you resell them i mean but it's just like to me that was like one of the one of the greatest oh yeah of the sport i mean i know the sport's continuing and it's growing and, and i guess it's bigger now than it was back then but for me something about that whole thing so i mean that's uh I, i'm not surprised that that's your moment but um i mean before we uh close out if there's anything you want to plug i mean the, the book a, a podcast anything you got going on let folks know where to follow you and and all of that. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. So my 15-year-old daughter, Ellie, runs my Instagram. She's doing really well. I think it says Sean Wheelock official. Um, <laughs> she's doing much, much better on, on, uh, than I ever could. Um, get a 15-year-old uh, child in your life uh, to, to run your social media. That account. That definitely helps. What I, I always like to plug is, is the book that I co-wrote with Art Davey. It's called Is This Legal? Again, I wish I could say more. I really can't, but we're getting close to announcing it. it is a major studio pick not no disrespect to showtime extreme but it's not going to be showtime extreme with tom sizemore no disrespect. <laughs> <laughs> i shouldn't i shouldn't be snarky i'm from kansas i really shouldn't be snarky tom sizemore's had a good career but it's it's going to be pretty cool but if you want to get a copy of the book i'm going to hook you guys up but if, if you're watching you can get a copy you can get an autograph copy from art for some unknown reason you want my autograph i'll do it as well but uh, we control the inventory right now. You can find it on Amazon and still in Barnes & Noble, but the best price is directly through us. It's isthislegalthebook.com, isthislegalthebook.com. You can get a book. You can just get a standard book. Um, we do uh, breaks on on, on uh, orders of 20, which a lot of people do. A lot of promoters actually will buy a case of 20, and they'll do them as giveaways. You can get the autographs from Art and myself if you want, but isthislegalthebook.com, and Again, that tells the four-year story, 89 through 93. This guy who was an advertising executive named Art Davey, who was in his 40s and just divorced for the third time, spent his life savings and had a dream and uh, created something that turned out to be the ultimate fighting championship. Cool. We'll, we'll drop a link, too, in the in the podcast description. I appreciate that. YouTube. Yeah. Fans can follow us at Combat Hour on Twitter, Coast to Coast Combat Hour on Instagram. 
Follow me, Matthew Hawkins, at MMAHawk21 on Twitter and Instagram. Follow Ed at Carbazal on Twitter, Carbeerzal on Instagram, and Old Head Carb on Twitch. The great Sean Wheelock, I, you know, I do this as a fan. I, you know, luckily me and Ed get to do this and we get to talk to some great people in this sport. Um, I can tell you right now, this is one of the best, my favorite shows. Getting a chance to talk Thank to someone you. who's seen what you've done uh, as professional as you are. Um, I look forward to maybe having another conversation down the line, much like this. And, uh, and there's, I just, I, there, I could go on for days with all the questions I have, but I just want to thank you for coming on, giving us your time and, um, uh, look forward to your next thing. Uh, do you have a, do you have an event coming up? I know BKFC is kind of in limbo a little bit, maybe June 18th in, in Miami. Yeah, I have uh, Lion Fights, so that will be on Friday the 21st of May on UFC Fight Pass, and then I have a Roy Jones Jr. Boxing, I believe that's June 10th, and then the next night, Icon MMA. Uh, Amanda Serrano, the, uh, no disrespect to Clarissa Shields, yeah, but the yeah. greatest pound for pound female fighter is going to be an MMA on that card. Those two are on UFC Fight Pass, Triller the week after that, and then uh, waiting for confirmation on BKFC, but some big things are coming with BKFC in June. Awesome. Well, everybody support, uh, buy the book and, uh, thanks again, Sean. Uh, really appreciate uh, the conversation. Matt, you guys are awesome. Anytime. Let's definitely do this again. Phenomenal questions. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for the kind words. Thank All right. You. Good night. Hey guys, Ed here, East coast side of the coast to coast combat hour podcast. If you like what we're doing, make sure you subscribe on YouTube and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, if you'd like to help us out and donate, uh, the support links are in any of the uh, podcast descriptions, and some the links are also provided on our YouTube channel, The Blogboard Jungle. Um, thanks again for listening, and if you give us some support, we'll give you a shout-out on the podcast, maybe uh, bring you on for a UFC pay-per-view breakdown or two. Thanks again.